0: All right. Welcome to another edition of Same Difference. I'm Michael Higgins, and joining me uh, today is Michael Wayne Tyler. Welcome, sir. You are, uh, I would say you are a creative living in Nashville. Uh, He is a photographer, uh, writing some books right now, Um, jack-of-all-trades artist, painter, painter. makeup artist, style, do you have. And so I think I'll go with creative. Is that the best way to start, start with this? That sounds great to me, Michael. Thank you. And, uh, we are, um, we started a conversation before we hit the button here and just, uh, we thought, you know what, um, Michael Tyler has been part of the, uh, LGBTQ community, been part of the straight community. Yes. And, um, and live, and you live in between that now? <laughs> right,
1: live. exactly. Well, you know, Michael, I recently went through a divorce. Well, last week was the one-year anniversary of the divorce. And as that process was taking place last year, I, I was in Oklahoma City, and I found what I started sharing with people was that I had married a man in the 70s before I married the woman in the 80s that I was now divorcing. She gave me grandbabies and he gave me headaches.
0: There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you were in Atlanta in the 1970s. You're kind of a, uh, a veteran of, uh, the LGBTQ scene before it was being called the LGBTQ plus scene. True. And, uh, so you have, you do have some words of wisdom, um, uh, from, uh, you know, you you've said before when we've had conversations that you know the 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 kids may not want to hear from you, but actually, yeah, I think I think they actually do want to hear from you, and there are a lot of people who just want to hear some information, hear from you, and, and hear what's going on. So, uh, what was happening with you in the 1970s in Atlanta?
1: Well, Michael, to begin with, I, um, I was living right out of Atlanta at the time that my father retired from the military service. He was in the Air Force uh, as a lifer for over 27 years. And so during high school, I started to drive down to the city because the weekends were packed in an area known as 10th Street.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Hippies, basically. I called myself a weekend hippie because I still (laughs) like to take a bath every night. But I was growing my hair long, wearing bell bottoms, and painting flowers on my arms. And so one of the things I discovered that was awesome was having what I considered a tribe to be a part of that soon evolved out of my days of being in Atlanta, and it really didn't happen until I moved down full-time after graduating high school and began to attend the Atlanta College of Art. And it was during that time, Michael, that I actually found a group of people, men primarily with women, though, that made up the gay culture of Atlanta. And so for the first time that I could recall since uh, being on the adult side of of puberty, I had a group of people that I felt in commune with, somebody I had uh, things in common with, as as well as I could be myself, express myself as I wanted to, and just be me. And so I found that to be utopian. So as well as the hippies and, and everything going on with free love, free speech, free music... I also had a life that was now free in the early
0: 70s. So now, taking that, going back and forth, you said you were a weekend hippie. Now, So you had that part of you. Now what were you doing the rest of the time? Well the weekend hippie part was simply during high school. I was, okay. was
1: in high school so that on the weekends I would pick up my girlfriend. Uh, I always had a girlfriend in high school. And so, uh, you know, I I had to actually wear a a jacket and tie to pick her up because her father worked for the uh, Georgia Theater Company. He was one of the vice presidents. And so mom and dad expected their daughter to walk out the door looking um, her evening best. And so we would strip the evening best off to T-shirts and uh, blue jeans on I-65 or I-85, as it was, driving downtown every weekend when we headed (laughs) south. But what I what I was doing at the time, as I say, through high school was playing as a hippie, hanging out because, you know, on Tenth Street between North at, well, actually between Fourteenth Street and Tenth Street, you had people ten foot deep on the sidewalks. That's how busy that one little section of Peachtree Street was, and then just a few blocks away was. Um, the equivalent of Central Park, where thousands and thousands of people gathered every weekend, hanging out with um, live musicians, artists, hare Krishna, everybody. So it was it was sort of like an ongoing Woodstock.
0: Yeah. So this wasn't you know th- this wasn't just gay culture. This was just culture. This was seventies culture.
1: True, and and it's it's a lot of the culture that we're seeing break forth now out of the newest generation who have a very passionate connection to it. I have a 19-year-old daughter who, as a matter of fact, has said several times she wished that she could have been in that era that she knew I was so familiar with because I was 19 when I was in that. But you see, after I graduated high school, as I said, I moved downtown. And so that's when I, I really began to discover and fully move into the gay culture now being there in the gay culture um you know I, I guess I could sum it up from the year of uh 71 let's say until about 86 and during that time in Atlanta Ted Turner was beginning his his cable cabling the world and so as as I learned a trade I, I only stayed in art school for one season And then I discovered uh, on the advice of one of the styles directors of Atlanta that I had a talent in cosmetology. So I went to hair school, got my license, opened Atlanta's first makeup school in 76, and then uh, went on to join the the union in New York City in in hair. And before the 70s were over, I was Atlanta's first full-time professional studio hair and makeup artist doing motion pictures, doing magazine work. I did 120 episodes of a uh, soap opera titled The Catlins on on Turner's Cable. It was sponsored by Procter & Gamble. The first motion picture I did was um, co-directed by an heir to Coca-Cola Bottling as well as Catherine uh, Catherine Bigelow, Mm -hmm. who, as we all know, won against her ex-husband, when he came out with Avatar, and she came out with, um, oh, what was it that she came out with? Not The Box. Um, oh, it, it was about, I think it was about Vietnam. and The, the Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker, yes. Yeah. Yes, Catherine's always been one highly respected director because she takes a very rough subject and exposes it as if it's documentary instead of, lines that have been memorized and characters that have been
0: created so sure. she's really quite a talented woman. Now, so you've gone through, you're, you've gone through this. Now, you eventually got married. Yes, I did. But in this time frame, you were you were in you were immersed in the gay culture. True. Now, how was that for somebody, you know, especially somebody who may not be who may be in the gay culture now? compared to compare what's then to now what's going on, you know, what happened differently? What was,
1: well, I I tell you, honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot that is happening differently. I think what we have now with Facebook, with texting, with messaging, we have an opportunity to communicate more openly. We have an opportunity to know what's going on down the street from us as well as as the next state over and the next country over, and so there has come about such a an easy means of communication today, I think that we're much more aware of what is going on with more people, whether they're in our tribe or in another tribe
0: was the the bubble that was there a bubble in the seventies um, of keeping it hush, or was the culture enough that it was you know, safe enough to be open and everything was fine? Well, I I think
1: for many people, they were not as fortunate as I was to find a a tribe, let's say. I, I think so many people were isolated in their towns, in their homes, that they had to keep it quiet. But you see, within the creative realm, of course, 1985 and 1986 were very clear times when we lost a huge portion of our creative people due to AIDS. Mm. But that community, say for instance, my being a stylist in Atlanta, I was 24/7 with models, with actors, with talent, with producers, with photographers, with musicians. And so that world itself had little to no distinction of individuals choices and lifestyles. That world was a melding of multiply talented people who were creative. And so that in itself is another very safe tribe for me to
0: participate in. Certainly. So what brought you, um, what, what made you get married? And how did that, and you know, and, and feel free to, to uh, avoid the drama if you, you know, that's, that's okay. Um, or if you feel like you need to let go of the drama, that's okay too. Uh, but so how did, how did you, how did a gay man in, uh, Atlanta end up being married and, uh, eventually having kids? Well, um, and there are gay people who are listening right now going, huh, well, we know. Yeah. Well, for me, what really happened, Michael,
1: was that, um, I reached a a point in my life where it didn't seem to me that a man would satisfy me in the area of romance and love. And I had never, or I hadn't since, oh, I guess 12 or 13, seriously dated a woman. So I thought maybe that's the thing I needed to do was to, to date a woman, consider having my own family. And so what, what did happen is I started asking the, the women closest to me, and, and those were models who simply laughed at me when I turned around and suddenly wanted to seriously date them hmm. because we'd been going out to the gay bars together for the last few years. And so I, I could understand that, but then I eventually asked a woman who I'd never seen at a gay bar if she would go out with me, and she did. We had a wonderful time, but at the, at the end of our date... Um, she, before getting out of the car, she looked at me and said, Michael, you know, I I think there may be some things that you would like to discuss with another man. And I happen to know one that you could speak with and he wouldn't judge you, and I'd like to give you his phone number if you ever want to. So I took the piece of paper, and Michael, to be honest with you, I thought, well, isn't this sweet? (laughs) And so... You know, I thanked her as nicely as I could, uh, walked her to her her front door, and said goodnight. Well, for the next four nights, being alone or without a date, I I went out drinking, because I found that I had started drinking a good amount in those last, uh, well, that last year before this, and so the fifth night that I went out, I happened to have I've had so much to drink, I have no idea of how it is that I got home. I woke up the next morning with a hangover. I woke up, discovered I had been beaten up and I'd been robbed from. So I Mm -hmm. drank myself into a a dangerous point of bringing someone into my own home that I have no idea of who that was and was so horrified of having done that and as well with the hangover and the bruises that were hurting, I remembered what I had heard from the woman I had dated. And fortunately, that that piece of paper had not been taken. And so when I found the phone number, I called. I, I introduced myself to the man and explained why I'd called him. And he started talking to me and then I found out he was a preacher. Yeah, and you know, it 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 didn't surprise me under the circumstances, but I really wanted to know something. so I, I I shared with him sincerely. He offered me a way of living that I opted in for, and at the end of our telephone conversation, I. I went and visited the church that he was pastored with, and that that was actually in Little Five Points, Atlanta, and became a a member of the congregation there and uh, was part of it for a year. And it was while being a member of the congregation that a couple of other really big things happened in my life. Number one, um, it wasn't too many months into... Being with their congregation, that I had something going wrong with my body, to eventually discover that I had been infected by a virus that had just really surfaced in the last couple of years here in America. At the time, they called it GRID, and at the time, when I discovered that I had it, they told me I had six weeks to live. Well,
0: and, and this was what year?
1: Um, this was in 1976. Okay. 76, seventy, yeah, 76. No, hold on, I'm sorry. 86. 1986. Yeah, so there, you, there you go. So I'm thinking. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, um, part of my dismay in the decision I had made of, of maybe looking for women was that I did live in Manhattan. In 1985, I actually worked as a talent agent. Uh, where Alphonse Rivera was our leading talent, because at the time he was starring as the tap dance kid on Broadway. Mm-hmm. He was in the Michael Jackson commercial, the one before Michael's hair caught fire. Mm-hmm. But the disappointment that I went through not being able to really plug in with a full-time gig in New York City sent me back to Atlanta disappointed, dis- disenchanted. And so that was one of, the, um, one of the things contributing to my wanting to change my life. And so, as I was saying, though, the the six weeks prognosis of death because of the new virus that was found in my body, I think, I don't know if if I just became dead to it and, and out of shock, or what I really think happened is what I thought in my mind is that, Because I had been going to church, I was reading a book that had an interesting way of looking at life along with stories that I could rather easily believe in and with it found hope and life that I had never known before. And so when they told me that, I thought, well, you know, there haven't been too many men I know of who have actually said much that was useful in my life And so why would I believe it when this one man has told me I'm going to die in six weeks because of this virus where he doesn't know me from Steve or John? And so the word of God, though, was telling me to be encouraged to have hope and to tell me to believe that I could have life. And so that's exactly what I did. Now, in the church I was in, and it was rather small, there was a very adorable woman who was recently divorced she had a couple of children, and so I thought, well, with this virus, I don't think I should have children. So this could be a perfect setup for me. And so <laughs> I started, um, you know, I started hanging around with her quite a bit and doing things with her. But it was pretty quickly that I found out she wasn't really interested in me because what she said is that she wanted more of a blue-collar worker instead of somebody that was creative. Mm-hmm. And so, lo and behold, it wasn't too soon after discovering that she introduced me to her neighbor, and her neighbor is the one who, um, I guess, six months after our first date, became my wife back in
0: 1987. Sure. So, in the interim there, you went from, I have six weeks to live, to six months later. Mm Mm-hmm you uh you you are now married right now how did that uh what was going on i mean how how did your your new wife and recognizing your divorce now and we'll get there mm-hmm. um but how how did that all how how did that all play out in that that six that six months well um
1: i tell you what happened was she invited me to go to a ministry meeting in birmingham alabama so that was our first first, uh, first official date together <laughs> And our time together, personally, and so, with uh, Birmingham being three, I believe it's three hours west of Atlanta. We had three hours driving. We had about three hours there at the service. Three hours back. Nine hours together, and I found myself smitten by her. And so, over the next several months, time we were either on the phone together or in person together every day until. Uh, four months of courting, we did become husband and wife. And so when we when we married, we had planned and, and done what was necessary to pack up from Atlanta to head out to Texas, where we were going to spend our first year so that I could go to Bible school. So we married in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, on our way out mm-hmm. to Irving, Texas. And so it was out in Irving that we really got to know each other in the midst of others and our relationship and uh, my relationship with the bible and and with the lord both grew at the same time and so after a year there i had uh, completed what i thought was necessary in bible school and deciding where we should go after that we agreed to come to nashville And that was because her mother was still living in uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and her grandparents were up in um, Franklin or Salmons, Kentucky. So that's what brought me to Nashville, what, 28,
0: 27 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So Um, kids came along the way. Now. True. How did that work with a man with what was known as GRID that became known as HIV? Well,
1: and and thanks for making that point. What happened was... To specify to
0: people who don't know what was GRID, what was the acronym?
1: Right. Gay-related immunodeficiency. That was GRID. But that, that was changed as quickly as possible because it actually soon after that became evident it was not related only to gay people. Yes. Because pretty immediately it was also having to do with the improper use of needles. Yes. And so, uh, yes, after after courting for four months, and the interesting thing I'll always reflect on is our four months of courting was either dialogue over the safest condom to use <laughs> or or, and in addition— healing ministries of marriage and so that's one of the reasons why I remained married for 27 years was because I constantly thought just as well as I did live that um, our marriage would heal and we would grow together as we had been in our during our romance season but about a year and a half into marriage six months being in Atlanta one Sunday afternoon after getting home from church, as was often the case, having a day of rest, we uh literally rested under under the the cover of the bed quite often after church and lunch and so one afternoon, we decided at the same time both of us to um to toss the <laughs> toss the condom and so interestingly enough, that first time of having unprotected sex, Michael produced um or conceived our first child, who is now, well, on the last day of this month in July 2016, she will turn 27 years old. Wow. Yeah. So it was was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, though, was that my wife, for the first time, for just never having reason to bring it up before, admitted that even going through, or in pre-puberty, her doctors prognosed that if she ever were to get pregnant, it would be... Uh, she 'd have a lot of trouble doing so, so she was surprised as well was I that our first unprotected time of of passion and sex created our first baby and so the Word of God at that time had continued to grow because uh, that was now nearly two years of, of having been, having known the Bible, reading the Bible sharing the bible with other believers and so we both believed that this was god's hand in our life you know i'd lived way beyond the six weeks by this time and so we simply thought this was another step another step in what would uh, amount to being ministry for us to those who number one had been in gay lifestyle or had had same-sex attraction and then number two, or as well, to those individuals who were HIV positive. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was where we were at that time. It wasn't until after our first child was born that I even thought twice about what had happened, what had I done. And one morning I was having an an internal emotional explosion over what have I created, have I done... Something that could end up being miserable for our daughter, you know, that might manifest this disease at any time now. And when I called my wife, surprisingly to me, and I think you'll all find it surprising, that morning as well, she had seen an article in a local newspaper here in Nashville talking about how all the mothers who had uh, delivered babies had been blind tested for the virus. And so she called the hospital to ask that had that test proved positive, would she have been notified? And they said, oh, yes, ma'am. And so there we <laughs> had, you know, an, an official an, an official source basically say to us that my wife didn't have the virus and neither did our baby. But another thing that happened for us was that in her latter, uh, let's see, what is it, the, the third trimester, we began to seriously plan the pediatrician for our child and the, the the pediatrician asked if we might allow our child to participate in what is known as the Hib as in boy the Hib virus vaccination that they wanted to test we saw it as an opportunity that Vanderbilt on an, on a on a every 6 weeks basis for the first year of our newborn would be testing her blood for any abnormalities while inoculating her because at that time they had only inoculated toddlers for the virus but they wanted to start doing it with uh, with newborns so that they could prevent those uh, the hip virus from taking the lives of, of younger babies and so we were very you know we we were put to rest over being a participant with the blood testings that they were doing and that that again freed us of much concern over our doing something that was totally crazy.
0: Sure. So, and then same thing. You have you have two daughters. Is
1: that correct? Right. And so, seven years later, uh, and and it's not that we had only tried unprotected sex twice. But sure, sure. Seven <laughs> years later, we conceived our second child, and then I believe that at that time my immune system. Had grown so weak that it's likely while I was in the hospital for our child's birth, I came down with pneumonia. Because six weeks after our second child was born, I went to the hospital to die. Mm-hmm. I had had been suffering a lack of of breath for a good month, month and a half, and so. Uh, i'd had an appointment to see my doctor i didn't know how critical it was and so i was on a waiting list two or three weeks uh, appointment coming up and then finally getting back in town after a family reunion in oklahoma i i called the doctor and said doctor i i just am having such a problem breathing can you see me and so he suggested i come into the emergency room i did he um X-rayed me, told me 75% of my lungs were full of PCP, and that was known prominently as uh, an AIDS-related pneumonia, and immediately admitted me into the hospital, pulling together a team of specialists to help pull me through, and they did. I was uh, out of there in a week, pneumonia-free, and uh, as a matter of fact, it was that very month that a scientist whose name is uh, Ho, actually, with the work and studies he had been doing in the laboratory, they had begun out of the trials era, and I I can talk about clinical trials in a moment, but out of trials and now in prescription, they were uh, administering a medication that for the first time truly was evidenced to fight the virus. And so... um, Letting first the, um, oh, goodness, what is it that they, they
0: often use in order to stop the body's reaction? The immunosuppressors that you're talking about, or are you talking about the protease inhibitors? No, it's not that. I'm, I'm
1: talking about what so many people are given, like, in order for my lungs to not give out and, and fight, they gave me a medicine that's very commonly used to remove pain, okay. things right. like that. And so they wanted that to get out of my body before I started on the combination therapy medications because they wanted to be certain there would be no inner reactions.
0: Now, were you taking any any drugs up, in, no. up until this point? So you were told back in the, in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. 1986-ish, right. you've got six weeks. Yes. And then... You're not taking they didn't say well and they didn't have a drug to give you so you didn't have a drug you just continued on right and so we're talking 10 15 10 15 years later yes okay go ahead yes right and and see during that time michael
1: azt had been put into use but uh even as as part of a local church here in nashville called belmont I participated with a, a men's group that had men in it who, like myself, were also HIV positive, who had taken the AZT and their personal stories of the horror that their bodies had with the medication in it made it made it not worth taking, in my book. And and even so, I had heard incriminatingly a sixty-second blurb at the end of a commercial. On the radio, talking about the wonders of AZT, the last thing that they said about it was that it has been proven to extend the life of those who take it by at least 24 hours. I was horrified. Sure. Yeah. And so to go through potentially years of the nightmares, the 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 pain, and almost like uh, drinking. Uh, Well, it's like drinking gasoline, from the way it's been (laughs) explained. That that horrible, as to what it did, ravaging everything about the body. Oh, and the virus, too. That was their approach in the beginning, and so I didn't want any part of that. But as I say, I got out of the hospital, and once the meds they administered to me, there, for other reasons, were out of my body, started taking... The uh, protease inhibitors, which is is what they'd come up with as combination uh, therapy medication, two weeks after I had my first daily dosage, the virus was made undetectable. Now, undetectable can be confusing because undetectable medically means that there is a count of less than five hundred in a milliliter of blood. Now, in the last decade, they've they've even gone close or or deeper. Uh, to say that undetectable is also if you have less than 50. And so my count at this time, as far as the virus in my blood, is that there are less than 50 in a milliliter of blood. And so Mm -hmm. that's one of the two things that I am judged, uh, tested for, uh, at least quarterly or or, uh, semi-annually, as far as the status of the virus in my body. One is the CD4 helper count. And then the other is the HIV count. And so what happened when I went to the hospital to die was that my CD4 helper count was down to 27. Now, 750 to 1,100 is a normal immune system. Mm -hmm. So once again, mine was down to 27. So it meant I almost had no immunity in my body at all. Sure. Having lived with the virus for, as you said, 16, 17 years that we knew of. So two weeks out of the hospital, four weeks out of the hospital, two weeks on the medications, the virus was made undetectable. At that point, the virus had been reduced to such a smaller number that my immune system began to function as a normal immune system, working to strengthen my body because I reached a point to where if I stood up and performed a normal day, I had to be in bed three or four days to just recuperate because it weakened my skeleton as well as my muscles. Sure. Yeah. So I became, I, I had no choice but to become Mr. Mom overnight. And once I gained a little bit of strength in my body, I learned how to do full kitchen duty, house cleaning, cooking, and everything else that up until that time, um, my wife had, had really taken care of, and I might assist him, but um, I became Mr. Mom. And I have to say, being Mr. Mom is probably one of the, the greatest spoils of my life. Having the opportunity to be with and raise your own children is something that uh, I wish that more men were able to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, as much as you wish to share, we'll go there, but... So that, that takes us up to, you know, we're, we're into the nineties. We're into, uh, uh, you know, mid nineties here. Right. What happened as, you know, you, you have, you, there's a book right there. You had kids, Mm -hmm. the, the normal way, right. HIV positive man that's not something that people just sit down and go hey let's do that all right let's go
1: right with no medical intervention exactly
0: and so very very you know not and not something that's recommended for everyone true and so at the same time that's a book right there you and you are writing books you are you are uh, putting things together that uh that's nice. a movie i think um And if
1: there's anybody who strongly feels led to participate with me in that book or movie,
0: I would love to hear from you, or at least at least a Hallmark movie, if anything else. But 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 I think it's a it's a movie. So how did we, you know, how did you uh, come to today? You're you're now you've you've worked with a lot. You've worked with um, uh, makeup in movies and commercials, and uh, you've done a lot of art. You know, you're an artist and done a lot of artistry work. Cut Mm -hmm. my hair. Uh, hair and beard I think indeed so and and I need to talk to you about that I'd love to Um, (laughs) apparently it's time Uh, well Michael my my life
1: continued with the same hope that I had in taking on my bride okay my life has continued to be filled with hope and I'm not plugging the Bible but I am plugging what I found that gave me hope and faith and so with that, I was able... It took me four years to get off the deathbed, four years until I was physically able to drive away from our house as the sun was going down and feel safe. Up until that time, or you know, at that time, we didn't have cell phones. They weren't common. And so I, I had been scared to even drive away from the house because of my body's weakness. But once my body did get stronger... I was able to go back into the field I had been trained in, and that was in motion pictures and doing hair. And so once we got beyond the illness devastating my body, and uh, I'd done the Mr. Mom work at home for, oh, a decade and a half, I started training to get back into the working world. I did that first on the suggestion of my psychiatrist who said, I think you're ready to re-socialize, Michael. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, up until then, I had learned to really only have people at the bank and at the grocery store in conversation. But I got back into the hair union, got back onto the the set, did uh, oh at least half a dozen more multi-million dollar projects, uh, motion pictures, television shows, And then realized at the age that I'd become and with the experiences that I've had and the talent and my love of of producing art, of painting, and and now, of course, the writing, I had more that I wanted to do than, than have directors, than have department heads simply telling me what I had to do. And so the opportunity to be creative started at such a young age for me. I mean, I I wrote, produced my first musical for an audience of over 300 when I was only in the sixth grade. And uh, having begun piano, uh, which with lessons continued for 10 years, and I still play some now, but starting at the age of five and then as well into dance, I've had so many facets of creativity constantly uh, roaring in my 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 every year, that the last four four years or so after getting back into the movie motion picture industry, and then deciding that i have had enough of that, concentrating on my writing. I, I've studied with uh, a local writer who online has had a marvelous mentoring course. Uh, Jeff Goins is is his name, mm-hmm. and he's created the Tribe Writers, but. After working with him, I'm able now to basically write a thousand words an hour on any subject that I set my mind to, but one of the things prompting that was that the day after my first daughter married, which uh, will soon be seven years ago, I had an appointment with the head of PR and marketing of Lifeway, which had been known for years as the Baptist bookstore, and sure. they wanted to, to to write a check to me and to purchase a m- my manuscript and help me write it actually to help me produce it but I didn't really want to simply go into one genre or one one division of, of writing I wanted it to be um, exposed to a larger market and so that's one of the reasons why I feel necessary to write it myself and um, hope now with the editor that I've begun working with to, to have that out pretty soon But as well, back when our second child was born, my wife had the opportunity of one of the two masters uh, to receive at Vanderbilt. That first one 19 years ago being in technology for special ed. I started working, um, went online the very month AOL went, 1995 Unlimited with a Performa, which was an Apple desktop, and started working in Photoshop and image editing and image creation. And so the uh, last three or four years as an artist, I've worked with with several of them, uh, local specifically, and come up with a technique that looks like it's something created out of Photoshop with layer upon layer and then some deconstruction and also with the use of, of words and lettering and communications, literally. And so I'm working on a collection of art that I've shown to a few people, uh, writers mostly here in town in, in Nashville, some in Atlanta, New York, and I've shown it to a few associates worldwide, and, and the reception I've had from it is, has been surprisingly remarkable. But I do want to say, during those years of being Mr. Mom, I started going to uh, an art center having to do with the metro parks, and actually produced a work of art that was hanging in the boardroom of the woman who brought Lindsay Lohan back from Paris without going directly to jail (laughs) five years ago when we had that flood here. And so that woman uh, actually happens to be the manager for Britney Spears. And so I was delighted with that, but the thing I really like about, about the whole incident there is that this particular woman has reached out to young women who as actresses or singers, performers, seem to be isolated because of their fan base from a lot of reality. And so she's done what she could as a manager to help bridge that issue. Sure, And so, you know, that's what I've been up to lately. And so as the creative side of me began to grow and grow, I began to become disillusioned with the relationship that I had in the way my wife and I were growing apart. And so it eventually led to my leaving and um, finding my own life again now after a divorce. And so what I did do was go to Oklahoma City where a family member had invited me to come and at first on invitation, I responded that I didn't think the culture would work. <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, my one time in Oklahoma City in the last decade had been soon after the uh, bombing that they had had. It was so devastating uh, sure. 21 years ago. and And so the place was horribly dismal. But when my cousin invited me and I declined within a few days, her husband suffered an automobile accident. So... She actually needed me. And so I hopped in the car, drove out there, and lo and behold, discovered the same sort of growth that Nashville's been seeing over the last three or four years. And it was phenomenal. I I found, you know, it was a much smaller version of it, but uh, even the neighborhood I I lived in reminded me of what Soho up in New York City had been in in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And so I had a marvelous place to be, But a result of having the virus that had turned into AIDS, and now with my body's immune system being strengthened, I'm back to simply being HIV positive, there was only one real community that reached out to help me. And so this was the gay community. Because that's the the sad truth about the virus, at least in the South, because that's where I'm most familiar most of the people who are physically there to help you if you suffer from HIV is gay because they know it's more likely that they're familiar with what you're going through and want to help you no matter what. And so it was it was very disappointing to discover that, but yet it, it's a very simple and plain truth. There are people who donate, and thank goodness, there are people who don't have the time, perhaps. But it's very obvious that those who really have a heart for people with HIV most of the time are those who are gay. And so, being back in almost a totally gay world, as it was for me in Oklahoma City, it also opened up uh, areas of my life that had long since been dormant. And so it's not that I am now gay or not gay or bisexual or any of the other terms that make That was up- my question. Uh-huh. And so I I, I I came up with simply being sexual as the answer to what am I in that area. <laughs> And, and you know, I, I was a teenager when David Bowie and Elton John and the asexual sort of prevalence in rock and roll started to come in. And so, um, you know, I, I had the long hair as a hippie, but I was also wearing the, the glitter tank tops and, and the rhinestone-lined cutoffs and, and the wild glasses and even the five-inch heels, the platforms. And so... I found it to be sort of common for a portion of the the people my age, but getting back to today, talking to those with aid service providers in Oklahoma City, every time I spoke with one I had to, to fill out a form describing which of the category I was. And so I would laughingly say, well, I'm sexual and draw a little box and check it. But then I would say, in order for you to get your government support, let me just check the top one. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm starting to feel a little different settled here in Nashville and having more talk liberally with many, even as yourself. I'm finding that perhaps the labeling is necessary to help some people but at the time, last year in Oklahoma City, I thought if we could just do away with these labels once and all, mankind could could um, be so much happier and freer. But I don't think it's going to be that simple, because the younger generation coming up with the information and the desires of their hearts to be helpful for all of us, I think that perhaps the labels are good so that they're, again... We're able to find our tribe and participate within a group of people who accept us, no matter what us is defined as and so uh that that's how that that ended up being, but um the other significant thing about discovering the gay community there in Oklahoma City was that I started meeting men whose lives had been devastated from the loss of their Long-time relationships. There, you know, men had been in same-sex relationships and partnerships, and of course, more recently, had had even married. But I, I was really, I, I, I was really made so sad to come in to know so many men who had lost their long-time partners, life partners. Uh, this hadn't been going on 30 years ago. That commonly, uh, it was going on but we didn't know about it again because of the way communication is as it is today. I even grew up in a house where my mother's brother brought a man home with him from um, the Korean War and they lived in my grandmother's house until they bought their own house and nothing was ever said uh, in reference to their lifestyle or degrading remark or comment or anything like that. And so. I didn't really see it
0: growing up as a difference from other couples. Sure. So, what would what would something now? I realize you're not speaking for your for a community. What you personally, you know, part of that what you say is, you know, brings forth the possibility of what what is being referred to as mixed orientation marriages. Mm. And so, you have a a a, per, a man who is gay who who decide who decides at some point this is what I was repressing i become gay or i am gay not become um i'm still learning help and i'm i'm learning too <clears throat> so learning well too. and it, so what happens in your opinion is that something that uh, that you know in in particular in in your case as well where you've said mm-hmm. i uh, you know I, I form emotional bonds with women yeah. but but sex with men is <laughs> is much easier
1: and yeah it well for many different reasons. But for myself, um, I you know, since the divorce, which has now been a year long, I have openly attempted dating women and men. The relationships with the men seem to come easier, but they also end quicker than they have been with the women. And so I'm open at this time Wondering that if, um, if I simply look at the response from whether it is male or female, that you know a relationship can grow simply out of that with an open head toward it, um, that's where I am at the moment. And, sure. and so, you know, I might have a gay orientation, a gay gene. But I also am no longer driven to make a family. And so whether my partner is male or female actually depends on many things. Number one, how we get along with each other, the, the chemistry sure.
0: of our being together. And I'll let it grow from there. Very good. What would you say to, you know, now you're the, you're the grizzled veteran. Nice white beard hmm. Got a little Gandalf look about you. Right. So what what are you going to tell a, you know, a young person in the LGBTQ community? And I can say young being being somebody who is 30. Um, okay. You know, we can we can kind of we can put it in, in that realm or mm-hmm. e- even even a, you know, a, a kid in high school who's who may not have even come out yet. Uh huh. But. Growing up the way, going through what you did and seeing the difference, even though that there's still pushback, seeing the difference that is happening now, what can you tell that 30-year-old, that, that high school kid who may not have even come out yet, or the 30-year-old who's trying to find their way in this community?
1: What would I tell them?
0: Um, well, number one, if, if
1: what is going on in their head is sort of foreign to their actions meaning that they're unfamiliar outside of what they're thinking themselves if you um, if you want to understand what's going on you can there are different places you can get in touch who are gay community built places generally in order to become familiar with other people who have similar feelings, and and you know I haven't given it thorough thought outside of the HIV realm, because well just because and and, and that is another thing is as I was making clear before those go there, go there. Go those ahead. those who are HIV positive really only have the gay community as physical in your face support, so that that would be a smart thing for you to look up, find out what aid service organizations exist in your local community or the nearest one, and uh, start to dialogue there. They, um, almost all of them have a heart line, which is a 24-7 uh, means of communication, make connection, and they'll advise you whether you are HIV positive or not, if they can. They can give you resources, and so I would highly recommend that because outside of that community, You're likely to simply be told that this is something that needs to be changed. And the approach taken with you would be that you need a pill, you need a life change, you need a cure. And sometimes, and actually most of the time, that's not going to be so beneficial. And so you need to go and find somebody who does accept the homosexuality and begin by being friends with them. Otherwise, you're going to be, it's likely that you will just be told what's wrong
0: with you and you could spend the rest of your life in a quandary. Okay. Yeah, very good. Michael mm-hmm. Wayne Tyler. The show is called Same Difference. We have talked about our difference. We're reaching for our sameness. What, um, what do we want to, we want to promote? We want to talk about, uh, you have, uh, you can, we can find you on Facebook, Michael Wayne Tyler, right? And, uh, examples of your artwork. ...are going to be there. Yes. So find, find him there. Be listening, uh, keeping an ear out for books by Michael Wayne Tyler. He has, as you can tell, he has a few that he could be writing. And so uh, be working on that as well. Um, what, else should we, what, what else should we promote for you, sir?
1: Well, actually, you know, th- that's it. Okay. I, I have a folder on Facebook, as we all do, in the photos uh, that's titled Art. But actually, if you'll get on Facebook, I'd love to talk to you there, you know, the listening uh, audience, and uh, hear from you what you think of of having heard this talk today. And I'd love to hear your response to my own creativity.
0: Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Michael Wayne Tyler, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Michael.